Welcome to the Beacon broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com, beaconbaptist.com. The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. Well, please listen as today we go a little bit further in our study of Christ's description of a Christian in John 17, 6. John 17 contains Christ's high priestly prayer. It is filled with truth. It is filled with wonder. It is filled with power. And it is therefore very important for us to study it as much as we are able, and that's exactly what we are endeavoring to do on the Beacon Broadcast over the last several weeks, and it'll it'll take a few more weeks to get through this chapter because it is so filled with truth. So thank you for joining me on this weekend, Saturday, February 17, or Sunday, February 18, whichever time you are listening. And thank you for remembering that we can only do this as we are supported financially by our radio listeners. And I would encourage you to consider the possibility that God would have you help us with this ministry. Thank you for your prayerful consideration. As John 17 opens, we find Christ praying to the Heavenly Father with petitions of his own. We've studied those pretty thoroughly. Verse 6 begins a section where Christ makes petitions on behalf of his disciples. And that's the section we are moving into now. And then there's a third section, starting in verse 20, where Christ prays for all of his people. So first, Christ prays for himself. Secondly, he prays for his disciples, that is, those who were with him at the time he was praying. And then thirdly, he prays for all of his people of all times. Let me read again verse 20. I say again, I haven't read it today, but I've read it on previous broadcasts. But Christ said, I do not pray for those, for these rather alone, that is, those disciples that are mentioned in verses 6 through 19, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Those who will believe in me. There are people who have not yet believed, but they will believe. I pray for them. I'm praying for all of my people on into the future until there are no more people to believe in Christ, until all the elect of God have come to faith in Christ and the bride of Christ is complete. But now we go back to verse 6, which opens the second section where Christ prays for his disciples. And he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, 
and they have kept your word. So, this is Christ's description of a Christian. We have a lot of ideas about what a Christian is, but let's hear what Christ has to say about people that we would call Christians. And he says, first of all, a Christian is one who first belonged to the Father. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So a Christian is one who first belonged to the Father, but a Christian is one, secondly, who was given by the Father to the Son. And I suggested to you on the broadcast last week that this bestowment was in accord with a Trinitarian agreement where the Father proposed this work of redemption and promised to give the Son a and elect people if he would redeem them upon the cross. And so we read in verse 2, going back to that section, as you have given him, that is Christ, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. How many is Christ going to give eternal life to? To as many as the Father has given to the Son. Not one more, not one less. And This is done by agreement between the Father and the Son. It is an arrangement which they have made before the world was ever created. But in the mind of God, a people were chosen by the Father. They belonged to him by electing grace. And they were given to the Son as a reward for his bestowment of of life by his sacrificial death upon the cross. Now, where do we find that, that they were given to him as a reward? Well, probably one of the clearest passages for this is in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 53, wonderful chapter. It's the fourth of the four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Four times there's a section where Isaiah, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes the coming Messiah. And there are an awful lot of prophecies in Isaiah about the coming Messiah. And he describes the coming Messiah as a servant of Jehovah. The first three are not particularly well known, but this fourth one, that actually begins in chapter the end of chapter 52 and continues through chapter 53, is a gloriously well-known passage. It describes the person and work of Christ in such detail that some have actually believed that it is New Testament, but in fact it is Old Testament. I remember hearing the testimony of a man who, was, who is a Jew and who was a clinical psychologist and who was disillusioned with his work. And he decided to go on a pilgrimage to, I suppose, to sort things out. And by the providence of God, he came into a Christian community in Europe, in Amsterdam, as I recall. And there he was, he was welcomed and assigned a room and, and uh, given all the things that he needed and, and a good meal. And then one of the workers there said, would it be all right if I would read some scripture with you before you retire for the night? And he said, 
Yes, but only the Old Testament, because I am a Jew. I don't believe in the New Testament. So the man said, fine, I'll be happy to do that. And he sat down with him, and he read Isaiah 53, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, ground he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers, or before its shearers, is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, and here we go, he shall see his seed. How can one who was never married and never had any children, how can it be said that he will see his seed? Well, of course, it's talking about spiritual seed. It's talking about the, actually, it gets into the millions of those who trust in him, who become his children by regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that brings him by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And then this, verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. He's going to see what his redemptive work as he came to earth as the incarnate babe in a manger and grew up upon the earth and lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father and died an ignominious substitutionary death to bear the punishment for the guilt of the sins of all who would trust in him and he will see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, there's the servant language. He, this is the fourth servant passage. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is the spoil. This is the rewards of his conquest. Because, it goes on to say, he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. There we have reference to Christ receiving this 
vast number of people called his seed, his children, receiving them as a reward, as the reward of his victorious conquest, uh, pictured here as the spoils of, of warfare. And this indicates his, his reward promised to him by the Father if he would go to earth and take on this work of the atoning sacrifice and the redemption of his people. Now back to my story, when the Christian worker read Isaiah 53 to our Jewish psychiatrist, clinical psychologist, he said, he, he protested, he said, I told you not to read the New Testament. That's Jesus. I said, don't read the New Testament. I said, read the Old Testament. And the personal worker said, that's your prophet Isaiah. That is the Old Testament. This was written 700 years before Jesus came. And God used that to show him the truth about the Messiah that has come has already come 2,000 years ago, and he became a Christian. And today, at least the last I knew, I don't know, I haven't kept up with him, but the last I knew, he was pastoring a church, a congregation of Christian people in the country of Canada, north of us here. Wonderful story. But here's where people were given to Christ as a reward. Verse 6 again, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So, these were given to the Son in a Trinitarian agreement. These were given to the Son as a reward for his travail. These were given to the Son as a charge, as a responsibility. They were given to him so that he might redeem them so that he might protect them, so that he might keep them. Now, the question is, we said that Christ is praying here for his disciples, and particularly with the 12 apostles in view, but can these words be limited to the 12 apostles? Did Jesus manifest the Father's name only to the 12? Are the apostles the only ones who have kept God's word? Are they, are they the only ones for whom Christ is praying in verses 6 through 19? And I'm confident that that is not the case. And that's why we I read verse 20 earlier, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. We'll get to that verse in due season. I keep mentioning it now in, con, in, in connection with verse 6. But when we get to it, in our verse-by-verse -verse exposition through this prayer, we'll see some other aspects of this work that is found in verse 20. But now we move on. Christ, remember, is describing what a Christian truly is. And a Christian is one who first belonged to the Father. A Christian is one, secondly, who was given to the Son by the Father. A Christian is, thirdly, one to whom the Son manifested the Father's name. I have manifested your name to, to whom? To the men you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, 
and they have kept your word. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. But, verse 20, I keep going back to that. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so it seems apparent that the Son has manifested the Father's name to all of his people. Now, what does that mean? Well, there is evidently a special group singled out for a special manifestation. I have manifested your name to everyone. No. I have manifested your name to everyone in Israel. No. I have manifested your name to everyone who heard me preach and teach in Israel. Well, surely there was some level of truth that was spoken to all of these, whether they believed or not. But I have manifested your name. That means I have displayed your name. I have revealed your name. There has come a life-giving, life-changing manifestation of who you are. Christ came to reveal the Father. Christ came to make the Father known. Christ came to manifest, to display, to reveal the Father to whom? Well, he tells us to whom. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given to me. He has manifested, and we read here, the Father's name. That kind of language, of course, comes up often in Scripture, as you well know. But we still stumble over that sometimes and take our idea of name and transport it back into what the Scripture says instead of, more appropriately, studying the many places where that phraseology is used in Scripture and coming up with an understanding of what the Bible means when it uses that kind of language. I have heard, I, I heard a preacher one time say, if you have not been baptized in the name of Jesus, you have not been scripturally baptized. If you were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you weren't baptized right. Because in the book of Acts, it says that, that people were baptized in the name of Jesus. And this man was saying, when I baptize people, I baptize you in the name of Jesus, not in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the name of Jesus. And that's the name that you should have been baptized by, and if you weren't, then you haven't been baptized correctly. Now, the reason why most preachers who baptize people upon a, upon a profession of their faith baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is because they're following the words of Christ himself and the instructions which he gave in what we call the Great Commission. When he said to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And here we've got the same language, but a different, um, a different slant, I guess you'd say, on it. Baptizing them in what? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet in Acts, we do read that they baptized people in the name of Jesus. So, is that a contradiction? 
Is Are people baptized in the name of Jesus or are people baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Well, the truth of the matter is that the word name is not to be understood in its most, what should I say, most exact literalness. It is to be understood as something which stands for the person. To, to manifest the Father's name means to manifest the Father. Surely you understand that. I mean, what would Jesus be doing if he were simply manifesting or displaying or revealing the Father's name? Which name exactly would that be? I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Well, what is the Father's name? Father actually isn't a name, it's a title. Well, you say his name is Jehovah or Yahweh. Well, that's true, but actually that term encompasses the triune Godhead. Jesus is also Jehovah, which a careful study of the scriptures will reveal. So, we can't say that the Father's name is Jehovah, but what we're talking about is baptizing people in the person of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, in the person of the triune Godhead, to be identified with the triune Godhead. And if you baptize someone in the name of Jesus, I don't think any great harm has been done. I mean, if you use that name when you baptize them, because again, you're just you're simply baptizing them in the person of Jesus, in the you're identifying them with Jesus, but I'd rather personally stick to the language and instructions which Christ Himself gave in saying, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus manifested the Father's name to those whom the Father had given him, he manifested the reality of who God is. He revealed God to them. He made God known to them. He made God real to them. It's similar. I'm sure I've mentioned this at one time or another. It's similar to the instruction that we are given that when we pray, we should pray in the name of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, in our usage of that today, we generally assume that means to close our prayers by saying, I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. I make this request in the name of Jesus. Amen. Something like that. Do I use that language? Yes, I do. It's not, it's not wrong to do that, but that's not really the meaning of it. And how do I know that? Well, one way is I have taken the time to look carefully at all of the recorded prayers in the New Testament, prayers of Peter, prayers of Paul, prayers of others, where the actual words of the prayer are given there. And I've noticed that not a single one of them close their prayers by saying, I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes the name of Jesus is mentioned at the beginning of the prayer, 
but not in the way we do it. We, we haven't really fulfilled that responsibility, that, that instruction, by adding the language in Jesus' name, amen, to the end of our prayers. And because of that, when I have realized the truth of what I'm telling you now, because of that, there will be times when I do not add the term in Jesus' name, amen, to the end of my prayers. And I would caution you about this because there's, there's some practical ramifications that we should keep in mind. I know sometimes God's people have become upset when someone was was designated to lead in a public prayer, and they failed to close their prayer in Jesus' name, and the idea generally is conveyed. They were ashamed to say the name of Jesus. They, they knew that if they prayed in Jesus' name, that would offend people, and so they were cowardly, and they left that out. They just prayed to God the Father, and they closed the prayer with an amen, and they didn't they didn't mention the name of Jesus, and shame on them for doing it that way. If I ever have that opportunity, I'm going to pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, actually, as I say, if you followed the actual wording of the prayers that are given to us in Scripture, you would be well within a God-honoring position to pray without saying the name of Jesus, at least in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't mean that we should hide our faith in Jesus at all. I'm just saying, if we're going to be biblical Christians, let's, let's pay closer attention to what we find in the Bible. And to pray in Jesus' name doesn't mean to say in Jesus' name. And to baptize in the name of Jesus doesn't mean to say, I baptize you in Jesus' name. And to manifest the Father's name to those who are given to him doesn't mean to somehow reveal to them a name of the Father, maybe some secret name or something else. That's not the idea at all. When Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world, it's clear from other scripture that what he's saying is, I have revealed you, my heavenly Father, to those whom you have given me out of the world. The term name is just a shortcut, I suppose you'd say, an idiom, a, a way of communicating the idea that name stands for the person. And the idea is to reveal that person, his characteristics, his attributes, his reality, who he is. And I have revealed the Father's name, not a special name, but a spiritual, special, <laughs> supernatural, and that's the key, supernatural revelation of the Father. When Jesus says, I have manifested your name, what he's saying is, I have supernaturally revealed the reality of you, Heavenly Father, to these whom you have given me. I have given them an understanding of yourself. This is a spiritual work. This goes along with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit who changes hearts and who illuminates minds and who gives those that are regenerated 
a spiritual knowledge, a spiritual understanding, a spiritual understanding of God that other people don't have. And Jesus says, a, a Christian is one that I have manifested you to in a supernatural and inward way. That's who a Christian is. And we have one more to go, and we'll have to take it up, Lord willing, next week, because, number four, we learn that a Christian is one who has kept the Father's Word. Thank you for joining me today. Please come back next week at the same time and the same station. Until then, this is Greg Barkman, Bible teacher on the Beacon Broadcast, saying good day. May God give you His eternal peace.